It's good to see you too. It's fine. I know I'm like up here, Mr. Rogers style, uh, just doing my thing. But um, have you guys argued this summer over games with your family yet? If you had one of those games that just kind of went um, from a zero to an 11 overnight and you didn't know what happened? No? I mean, I had game night with the guys the other day and I wanted to like punch one of my buddies in the face. That doesn't happen to you? All right, well, uh, maybe it's a Jacobson thing. I, I want to tell you the story um, that happened, kind of a legendary story in the Jacobson family. My um, family owned these, like, um, these cottages on Lake Michigan, in, Mich- in Michigan, on Lake Michigan, back in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. And legend has it that my great-grandmother, uh, this really small, four-foot-seven, 100-pound Norwegian woman named Marie, she, she um, owned all these cottages, and, and my dad, and as, as his, you know, she, it was his grandma, my dad would go up uh, as a little boy to the cottages and have long summer days, a whole week of just, you know, low-key doing nothing. That's kind of like the things that old memories are made of, and, and the adults would just let the kids roam around in the woods and on the dunes and in the lake while they would stay in the hot like toasty cabins with no air conditioning and they would play games for days and there's this one year back in the early 60s where uh, my grandma along with her husband and and some of her siblings uh, were all kind of like the adults at this vacation they played a game of monopoly kind of kind of like this one right here and and they played it for four days the same game four days. I've never played Monopoly longer than like three hours, and that was enough for me. They stayed at this game. It was set up kind of like this, like, kids don't touch the game. We're still playing. You know what I mean? Like that type of a thing. And and they'd played for four days. And the legend has it that my, my, my grandma was so angry at her husband because he was ruthless. He wasn't trading with anybody. He was amassing all these hotels. And, and the legendary story of the Jacobson family is that my little four foot seven, 100 pound little Norwegian great grandmother rose to her feet in anger and she said, Enough! She flipped the table. Have you ever done that? You've wanted to, haven't you? After the first service, people were like, Was that satisfying? I was like, What do you think? Whether it's um, fake money or not, we all feel deeply when we're losing with money. That's the point of this illustration I always want to open up with. Whether it's fake money or not, we all as humans have this complicated relationship with money where when we're losing with it, we feel it deeply to our bones and sometimes in life we just want to flip the table because it's so frustrating for us Uh, money has the capacity to wedge itself between family members I don't need any raising of hands right now we we know that money can complicate our relationships in fact one game of monopoly bankrupted not just the players who played but the generations that followed. I think about my great-grandmother and uh, if she were alive today, what she'd be thinking about me telling a story to all of you, my closest friends, generations later about this one week moment of her life after she had been provoked to the edge of insanity. We don't judge her for this moment. We know that just this is what's deep inside of all of us, is this desire to win with money. The legend of this game endured beyond the vacation and here it is also into future generations. 
I, I want to talk today about this topic of how to build a great life and, and how to do that. The author of one of the Proverbs, wise King Solomon, one of the wisest people that ever lived, he spilled a lot of ink on how to win with money, but also how to not let money bankrupt your relationships. He had uh, all this wisdom that he tried to share with his kids so that they would make good choices in their life and build great lives. And he, he told them a couple things. He, he told them uh, what money is. He, he told them what it could do. And he asked them to position it appropriately in their life. Let me say those all three one more time because that's kind of where we're going today. He wanted his kids to appreciate money for what it is, to respect money for what it can do, and to position money appropriately in what they valued in this life. Today, as we come to uh, the second week of Instructables, uh, Solomon's going to help us uncomplicate our relationship with money. And if we were to just take one by one the multiple Proverbs that Solomon offers us and just take them for 20 weeks, which we won't do because there's a lot of them, week after week, we would feel shackled by these Proverbs. They're very daunting. They're very restrictive. But I actually think today what I want to do is just give you a high-level overview of all of these Proverbs taken together. They lead us to a bit of a surprising place that actually uncomplicates our lives. So um, here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to just try and walk through these Proverbs to help us simplify our relationships and safeguard our lives. Here's the first principle, uncomplicating our relationship with money. These are uncomplicated truths, just so you, you're with me. Uh, money has the ability to, everybody say it with me. Build. Uh, you know this. Everybody knows this. This is what money does. It's, it's uh, maybe the most obvious statement, but this is where Solomon starts. That money, wealth, riches, there's a positive edge to it. Here's what he says. Here's, here's one of the, the first Proverbs. It says, dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. There is this amassing effect that money has that allows us to build slowly. This is the starting point of money. Um, how you come into it matters. Look at this. Dishonest money dwindles away. Uh, now, this is not because money that you steal has a curse on it or like blood money. If you've ever watched like a pirate movie, there's all these like hexes and things that people believe money has that like if you get a blood money, it's going to have some curse and your life will go bad. No, that's not why it dwindles away. Actually, in, in the, the Proverbs, this line modifies this line. And so dishonest money dwindles away. Why? Well, something about this is going to tell us why. Uh, because the person who gathers money little by little will make it grow. So there's, a, there's actually a character the person who is wise is one who slowly accumulates with faithfulness and hard work and diligence. So what Solomon is trying to tell us is that those who are dishonest will actually never be wealthy. They don't have the character that it takes to actually make money grow. Dishonest people don't build great lives. Partly because their schemes constantly embroil them in scandals, they're often paying people off just to survive. Instead, there's a steadiness represented in this proverb, one who gathers. That's like a farming term. Money, little by little. It's like the, the worker in the farm work, waiting for the right season to bring all of their harvest into the barns, diligently increasing their accounts, looking ahead to the future. Not only growing their life, they're growing their money. That's the first thing. Uh, here's the second thing. Uh, a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. 
That's Proverbs 13, 22. There's a few elements in this Proverbs that we all aspire to. When, when we diligently grow our resources, we grow our lives. We don't spend more than we gather. So at the end of our lives, there's much left over for the next generation. The wise person's relationship with money is not spend all that you make. Instead, there's a virtue to this, this positive virtue that my life would spill over and bless not just the next generation, their children, but the generations that follow that, their children's children. My mom has this joke. It's not a funny joke to me at all. She, she, um, every time she talks about her will, she says, you know, the first line of our will says, being of sound mind and judgment, we spent it all. Mom, that's not funny. That's not godly. Stop saying that joke. Solomon says a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. What, what we're getting at here is that money can, has the ability to, to build. Not just your own life, but notice it's building other people's lives. Now, I think there's a reason that Solomon says that, you know, you leave an inheritance for your children's children. Because if he would have just said, wise people live and leave an inheritance for their children, we all would feel the obligation of that. Like, I raised you, I changed diapers, I put you through school, coached your baseball team, I listened to all your band practices, I helped you when times were tough, when you bought your first house, we helped you out with that. Like, we just were there as parents to help, encourage you. And so at the end of our lives, we're going to give you everything that we had because we know that that's what parents do. But if you were really honest, oh gosh, I hope you're honest. If you're really honest, not many of us here feel obligated to our kids' kids. In fact, you don't even know if you like them. Am I wrong? I mean, I got kids, 10, 8, 6. I like them a lot. I will give them everything I have. In fact, I'm happy to give them everything I have. I think I'm going to like their kids' kids. I hope I do. I hear being a grandparent is like one of the most enjoyable parts of life. But, I, but, but, hold on a moment. I don't feel beholden to my grandkids. I'm not even sure that they're going to make wise decisions with their money. Why should I have to give to them? See what I'm saying? Solomon puts it out there because he so obviously wants us to think beyond just what we're obligated to and to a point of caring for others so that we build generational wealth. We build our lives into others. Is that me? No, that's not me. If you're texting me, please stop. Here's the third thing. Wealth makes many friends. The poor is separated from his friend. What else can wealth build? So wealth can build your life. Wealth can build your family. But actually, Proverbs 19.4 is telling us that wealth builds a community. Now, now, when Solomon says wealth makes many friends, he's not talking about friends in the way that you and I think about friends today. In the uh, early uh, centuries, the B.C. centuries, a friend was not someone named Ross, Chandler, or Joey. A friend was someone who uh, was richer than you, who you would go to to get a loan from and you would become a business partner. You had an idea for a new enterprise and so you went to a friend, got money. It sounds very much like the mob. I mean, the mob stole some of this language from the Bible. It's how it goes. 
and, and they made friends. It's what happens when you go to your kid's like theater uh, program and inside the theater on the bulletin is the friends of the theater. And that means these people gave us a lot of money. Yeah, we have that today. Go to the Kauffman Center and you'll see friends of the Kauffman Center. Wealth makes many friends. What this means is that wealthy people use their wealth to bring together people of common interest and pursuits to build the community. That when you manage money wisely, you actually have the capacity to do more for the place where you live than if you just had your money for yourself. So wealthy people would build roads and and trading systems and would build infrastructure to make sure that grain would be distributed to all the people. Wealthy people would make sure that there were schools and, and, and ways of caring for one another. But poverty, the poor, are separated from his friend. I think we naturally pick up what it means for money to build for us. It has a special ability to build and build generational wealth to build communities. Here's the big question for wise people today. Here's the question I want you to think about. Do I, do you use money to build into myself or to build into others? As we go through this, uh, the, these next couple of uh, principles from Solomon, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I use my money? If Solomon was giving me financial advice today, looking at my accounts, looking at my wealth, looking at my home, looking at all that I have, looking at my stock options, looking at my businesses, looking at my entire net worth, would Solomon's assessment of me be that I'm using my money to build into myself or am I building into my family and am I blessing others? That's the first thing that money can do. Money can build. That's um, the uncomplicated positive aspect of money. There's an uncomplicated negative aspect of money too that Solomon gives us. If money has the capacity to build, money also has the capacity to, say it with me, bankrupt. That's my least favorite part of Monopoly. I remember being a little kid growing up and playing Monopoly and learning this word for the first time and going, it means I'm out of money and it means in Monopoly you die. (laughs) You are done. You have nothing left. The game is over. Whoever has the most money in the Monopolies wins. And it's interesting that money has the capacity to grow your life and simultaneously it has this capacity to shrink your life. That might be the most surprising thing about money in the first place. That's because so, like so many sources of power and life, money has a dark side. Solomon knew this dark side and he warned his kids. Here's, here's four verses. Such is the fate of all who are greedy for money they rob, it robs them of their life. He who is greedy for gain troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. Watch, watch this next one. It says this, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower, if you have a mortgage, you know this is true, the borrower is servant to the lender. Last one, do not wear yourself out getting rich. Be wise enough to know when to quit. That's Proverbs 23 verse four. Good advice right there. Greed, debt, burnouts, all of these things can bankrupt our lives. Just like money is designed to build our lives and the lives of those around us, there are moments when money actually robs us of our lives and robs us of the relationships with people around us. 
There are people who can become victims of the collateral damage of our greed and our debt. I don't know if you saw this, but Solomon said that a greedy person loses their life. Or he, he also said uh, that a greedy person troubles his own house. See, our obsession with money will bankrupt not just our pocketbooks, but our relationships. Our obsession with money will make us win at a game at the expense of forfeiting relationships. A heated monopoly game is one thing. But if you misuse money in your family, you're really asking the people closest to you to pay the price for your decisions. There are a lot of examples that I could use to just talk about how this plays itself out in our society. I don't need to like belabor all of them. I'll just belabor one of them. Um, shopaholism, which goes by its more um, socially appropriate name, retail therapy. It makes many people live paycheck to paycheck, doesn't it? Even some people take out payday loans on tomorrow's garage sale items. Um, workaholism. It also asks our family to pay with their time apart from us. And when we are workaholics, our family doesn't get the best from us. They just get the consequences of our efforts, which is oftentimes money. We can all agree that a familial relationship founded on wealth and not worth is bankrupt. Parents, your kids don't care how much you bill per hour. They just want to know if you've got time for them. Last example I think I want to give here is one I want to sit on for a second. Um, I want to talk briefly about an extensive problem that I'm seeing in our society. Part of being a pastor is being a bit of a social commentator. And a couple months ago, I opened a sermon talking about how sports betting was legal in Kansas, and I knew nothing about it. And ever since then, I have heard um, nothing but concerning statistics around the country about this problem of sports betting. Um, in the months that have passed, sports betting has boomed to a multi-billion dollar industry. Statistics today say 10% of Americans have recently bet money on sports. I don't have the exact figure, but it's widely stated that most sports bettors are male, white, wealthy, and in their 20s, which was surprising to me. Now, the Bible, let's just all understand this. The Bible doesn't have a verse that says, don't bet your money. If it did, that'd be really easy because I would have put it up here and I wouldn't have to talk about this. I'd just be like, boom. But it doesn't. Just like it doesn't have a verse that says don't drink alcohol. There are these areas of life, that things that have dark sides to them that wisdom needs to speak into. And that's where I think the wisdom of Solomon speaks into sports betting. I also think that that's why it's okay to buy a raffle ticket to support your school. I also think that's why it's okay to organize a fantasy football league in your office to bring people together around a common season. But Solomon's got something to say to us, that greed brings trouble to your house. Um, Newsweek magazine just a couple weeks ago ran an article online based upon the most completed data known to us as a society today. It's data from 2021. Obviously, the current data is not going to be better. Here's what it said. From 2019 to 2021, in every state where sports betting was legalized, 
Calls to gambling help hotlines rose drastically. For example, one state, which is close to my heart, my, my birth state in Illinois, uh, calls to gambling help hotlines rose 425% between 2020 and 2021. We have no data yet available to us in the state of Kansas. In these situations, people found sports betting to be very easy because it's an app on your phone, very personal because only you know what's going on, and highly addictive and problematic for their lives to the point that these people all got to a point in their lives where they recognized themselves that they were in too deep and needed to get out, so they called somebody. I don't know what that threshold is in your life, but for me, that threshold's really high before I max out myself and I have to go seek help. This article uh, quotes a University of Memphis psychologist, James Whalen. He says this. He says, when you gamble, your brain secretes more dopamine than when you do any of those other things, which he had put up here. I just had to put them down here. Smoking, drugs, or alcohol. When you gamble, that's crazy to me. Your brain secretes more dopamine than drugs or alcohol or smoking. The article went on to summarize sports betting this way. This is the author of the article. It said, the problems that result getting into debt Rifts in relationships, difficulty holding down a job, they're serious, as is the impact on emotional, I would say mental well-being. So if Solomon was still dispensing wisdom today, I think he would write a 30-second chapter to the book of Proverbs. And verse 1 would say this. He would, I think he'd open it this way. He would say this. He'd say, draft kings does not love you. Draft Kings hates you. Because needlessly giving away your money on a hobby, which turns into an addiction, which then impacts your household, is foolish. Gambling addictions wreak havoc on families. But more so, they destroy relationships. I, say, I said that wrong. Gambling addictions wreak havoc on your finances, but they more so destroy your families. Divorce rates are double for problem gamblers because what Solomon says is while money can build, money can also bankrupt. And I just want to encourage you, if, if this is you and you recognize yourself in some of these uh, scenarios, shopaholism, workaholism, or problem gambling, I want you to take a step today. I want you just to say that to someone who means a lot to you in your life. If you're married, it could be your spouse. If you're engaged, you should go to premarital counseling. I strongly recommend that anyone who's engaged, particularly if you're in your 20s, your 30s, you're trying to figure out life, you need to talk with your, your fiancé about how you expect to handle money and what debts you have that you're bringing into your relationship. It will save you a heartache, a whole host of heartache, and it will help you build a great life together. If you're not sure who to talk to, there are help hotlines out there, but I would really recommend you start with the people that are closest to your home. Solomon says this, don't let money bankrupt your relationships. So here's some questions for us. Uh, am, am I free 
from the love of money that would ruin my relationships? Like, is there in me something that has got strings attached to money that those strings are attached to other people? When I do this thing over here, what is that impacting in my network? What is that impacting in my family? What impact will that have for my future? Am I free from a love of money that would ruin my relationship? Second question would be this. Am I free to be generous with others? Like, can I use my money to build? Or is my money so tied up, is all my margin gone? If it is, we've got to look at how wise people handle money. From all of this, doesn't it feel like money seems wildly powerful? Like, like, uh, like, like money can build our lives and money can shrink our lives. But that's where Solomon's wisdom comes in yet again. If money can build and money can bankrupt, um, that's what it can do. Solomon also has multiple proverbs about what money cannot do. Here's one. Money has no ability to truly endure. Uh, look, at what, look at what he says here. He says, for riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. People in Britain have a hard time believing that. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like leaves on a tree. You've heard that saying, diamonds are forever, right? You've heard that saying? Uh, I think that's true in the type of way where, like, we're learning that plastics are forever. Which I guess is hauntingly a reality for us. Um, diamonds are forever means there's always going to be there. They never die. But what Solomon wants to say is, like, while the value of a diamond might be forever, the possession of the diamond might not always be in your family. That's part of the fury of finances, they come and they go. Some seasons are high and some seasons are low. As a pastor, I'm always interested in how people approach their retirement. Um, it's, it's, a, it's such an important leap for someone's life into a fixed income based on their retirement savings. Over the past maybe 15, 20 years as I've watched important people in my life take that important step, there have been different seasons of the market that different people have crossed into retirement in. Some people have crossed into retirement after the market has just crashed. And they're wondering to themselves, do I have to keep working for five, ten more years to be able to even live? What do I do next? And there have been other times where I've seen friends of mine retire early because the market was doing so well. But Solomon wants to tell us money doesn't last. And you shouldn't bank your life on the fact that money lasts. He says a crown doesn't last. What he means is that if you spent your whole entire life building your, your life based upon your money and your power, you need to recognize that those two things are not eternal because you are not eternal. The best you can do is to be wise today and not place all of your hope in your money. Instead, um, these verses seem to imply that there's something better than money, and in tr truly, indeed, there is. Solomon's last grouping of Proverbs on money shows us, I think, what is most surprising about money, most helpful for us about money, and the most valuable lesson. Here, here's what he says. Money has no ability to truly enrich. Now, none of us believe that. But this is true. <laughs> All of us think that if I had more money, I'd, be, I'd have a better life. 
All of us believe that if I got another $10,000 today, all of my problems would go away. That if I could just pay that one thing, or if I could, that we all believe that the riches of this world come in the form of a really big, nice check. The problem that Solomon points out to us is that money will never truly enrich your life. You're like, Pastor, prove that to me. Well, I got, I, Solomon will prove it to us. Here's, here's a couple of verses. He says, better, which is a qualitative statement, better is a little with the fear of the Lord. A little meaning like not having enough to live off of than a great treasure with trouble. It's better to have God and nothing than to be incredibly rich with all the problems that come with it. He says this, better is a little with righteousness. Better is, 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 is giving up the things that would cost you your soul to have even less but to be right than a vast revenue stream without justice. Last one, better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one perverse in his ways, though he be rich. I don't know if you saw all of those, but a relationship with God, a life of integrity, a life of proper humility, a life of justice, all makes us richer than if you and I were even today's technocrat or newest billionaire. It reminds me of the words from Jesus, right? What good is it if you gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? And I think this is where Solomon's wisdom really hits me and maybe hits you. The life that secretly I want to build, the great life, it's one that uses money wisely. I think you secretly, no matter how good or bad you are with money, you secretly want to build a life that's good with money. But Solomon wants us to put money in an appropriate position. He doesn't want to make it so important for us that we become greedy and we start to rob others and to act unjustly. But he doesn't want it to be so unimportant for us that we don't consider how to actually bless others. Solomon wants to take what we often do is put money either too high in our estimation of our lives or money too low in our estimation of our lives. And he wants to situate it exactly where it's supposed to be, where we can use it to build our lives, build our families, and bless our communities. Our happiness, our riches, they don't actually depend on money at all. I don't know if you've ever um, done this. This was really popular in like the 80s, 90s, 2000s. We would, as churches, we would um, take trips to um, less developed countries. And we Americans would, would gather our money, we'd raise support, we'd take this lavish trip to go to a place where it was economically depressed, maybe less developed. And the general consensus on these trips were kind of like, you know, we're bringing money and aid and expertise to people whose lives, maybe they're miserable. And yet, if you've ever taken one of those trips, you've, uh, you know, you've hit this paradox head on in your life. You, you've, you've found the people there to be wealthy in ways that you've never dreamed of. That actually, Solomon describes it this way. This is the last one I want to leave, leave us with today. Proverbs thirteen seven. He says, there's one who makes himself rich, but has nothing. And there's one who makes himself poor, yet has great riches. And what he's saying is that there are virtues in this life that are more important than the resources that you have. You've heard the saying, the most valuable things in the life are free. And indeed they are. 
They're freely given to us by God and they're all, all of the free gifts of God are all wrapped up, kind of bound up together in the one gift, the supreme gift that God gives us, which is his son. You remember that verse, John three sixteen: for God loved the world that he gave his only son, that if you just believe in him, you will not perish, but have the one thing money can't buy, everlasting life. The New Testament tells us that in Jesus, we are rich in God's mercy and God's grace and God's hope and God's love. But the verse that I think comes to mind the most is, is I think from the Apostle Paul who considered Solomon's words when he wrote about the riches of Jesus. As he scribbled down this letter to the church in Corinth. He said this, he said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Doesn't that sound exactly like what Solomon said? Solomon said that there's one who makes himself poor, yet has great riches. I can't help but think that Solomon in his wisdom knew that one day Jesus would come and demonstrate for us how to have an uncomplicated relationship in this world with our resources. It's always bothered me that Jesus didn't have his own bank account. That, that Jesus actually entrusted his money to a guy named Judas. And if you don't know the story of Jesus and Judas, it doesn't go good for Judas. Judas actually betrays Jesus for more money. And in his grief, he takes his own life. Jesus was somehow un unattached to the stuff of this world. It's like he couldn't, he didn't care about amassing wealth in the same way that you and I amassed wealth. He actually, though he owned everything in the entire cosmos, he became a helpless baby. Born not in a hospital, not to the best doctors, not even to a wealthy husband and wife, but to kids in their teens who weren't even married yet. God did everything he could to lower his earning potential in Jesus. And yet he gives us the richest gift of all, which is himself because of Jesus. And Solomon's wisdom is designed for us to look not just at the world, not just at your neighbor, not just as your kids, not just as your community, but to look at the one who made himself poor, who then became very rich, Jesus. See, Jesus, in his life, was always using money in a way that confounds us. I thought about how Jesus would play Monopoly. I, I kind of, this week, I was thinking, like, if Jesus was, you know, in Michigan in the 1960s and sitting there with my great-grandma Marie and her husband, his name's Cleveland. That's like a name you don't name a kid anymore. Like, if, if there would have been this, this sort of, like, haggling going on or if Jesus would have, you know, he he'd probably would have been the type of person who's like, you know, you're not paying attention, but I landed on boardwalk, so here's your 50 bucks. If you play Monopoly with me, I'm not calling attention to the fact that I landed on your spaces. That's up to you to call out. You got it? Like, that's how I work. But I think Jesus, I don't know, maybe Jesus would have, like, had the brain power to, like, move the chance cards up so that they're always good for him and bad for you. I don't know how he would have done it. But I, as I was thinking about this this week, I thought, I do think I know one thing. 
I don't think Jesus would have played this game to win because that was really never his style. I don't think it's bad to win at games. I just don't think Jesus would have played this game so competitively that he lost his mind when he lost. Because for Jesus, a relationship is the richest thing of all. And Jesus would say to us, use money to build your life and the lives of other people. Use your resources to make the world great. Don't let your resources drive a wedge between the relationships that you have. Your riches will not endure. Your money is not eternal. Instead, relationships with God and with others are better. And I know this to be true because there's this one moment in Jesus' life. Do you remember that one moment in Jesus' life where he actually did flip the tables? There's this one moment in Jesus' life where he walked into the church of the day. And in this church, there was this space where uh, the whole world was allowed to gather. Some parts of this church, was the temple, some parts of the temple were just for Jewish people. But there were specific places where anybody in the entire world could come in and hear about God and learn about God. And this day that Jesus walked into the church, people had set up folding tables and brought in just giant amounts of money. And they would be selling and transacting sacrifices in an economy of efficiency, trying to make this whole entire thing that people were supposed to do by, by atoning for their sins, by bringing an animal. And people didn't want to travel with an animal. They just traveled with money and they bought the animal at the temple. But the people crowded out the space where the whole world could exist. They set up a market. And Jesus was so angry, not because there was commerce happening in the church. Come on. He was angry because people had put a wedge in relationship between the world and God. And Jesus flipped the table and he said, how dare you make money so important to you that you would crowd out the relationships that are actually worth something to you. Jesus always made space to build relationships. His example is the thing with the greatest value in the world. It's not a home. It's not a car. It's not an angel investment account. Those are all fine. What's the most valuable thing in the world? It's being rich towards God in a relationship because of Jesus. And then it's being actually rich towards others because of my relationship with Jesus. What's Solomon's main point on money? Wise people Use it to bless others and to build God's kingdom together. Here's three questions as we leave today. Here, here's just what I want to ask you as you walk out. If you take a screenshot of these and think about this while you're you know, watching a very boring game of baseball today or uh, maybe you're on the golf course and you just are kicking it with one of your friends, here's, here's a couple questions you can ask. Uh, how am I changing the generational direction of my family with my wealth? Like if Solomon was here today talking to you, would he look at you and say, you're caring about your children's children with your wealth. How, how are you doing that? And just get, you think about what are some ways. Maybe you're building a business, a family business, where, where you've set it up to go from generation to generation. That's a great way. It's a tricky way, but there's a great way to bless your family with your wealth. Here's the second question. How am I investing money in eternal endeavors? Solomon opened your books, looked at where you spend your money. Do you have more Apple stock than you do stock in people's souls? How are you actually using your wealth to invest in eternal relationships? For, for you uh, moms and, 
and, and dads who are staying at home over the summer with your kids and your house has become the hangout house. Every bag of chips that your kids plow through, if it's an environment of care and love and you demonstrated Jesus first family to those kids, that is a bag of chips that you've invested eternal endeavors into. Are you using what you have to bless people in relationships? And here's the last thing. Who can I talk to for help building my life according to God's wisdom? One of the consistent themes that we'll have in this Instructables series is that we're gonna go to God's word for wisdom, but sometimes that word is gonna tell us that there's wisdom all around us. Who are you looking at in this life who's maybe a step or two beyond where you are who would help you build wealth God's way? If you've got a problem with money, who can you talk to? Who can you get wisdom from so that you don't let money play you as the fool? Harland, no flipping tables in Monopoly this year. No letting money drive a wedge between our relationships. Instead, let's be the type of people who put money where it belongs as a way to build wealth, as a way to build our kids, but most importantly, as a way to build people who aren't even related to us. That's Jesus's way. That's Solomon's wisdom for money. And you gotta come back next week because we're talking about something incredibly great. We'll see you then.